Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 284, Athelstan the Victorious. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Lucinda, Susan, and Jenny for signing up already. Last week, we ended with King Athelstan's aggression towards the kingdoms of Wales and Cornwall. And we don't know precisely what occurred, or why Athelstan demanded crippling tributes from the Welsh, and then violently expelled or executed the Cornish of Exeter. But whatever the reason, Athelstan's actions echoed through history. In fact, the Welsh border that was established at the River Wye was still in place by the time of the Norman Conquest. Furthermore, the Welsh kings became members of Athelstan's court, and the government of De Hybarth, under King Huel Thaw, began to take on English, and thereby Carolingian, methods of rule. Huel's coinage took on an English appearance and even used Chester's mint to produce his coins. And actually, Huel even gave one of his sons an English name, Edwin. So in the aftermath of Athelstan's apparent conquest, we see southwest Wales cozying up to the first king of England, and apparently making sweeping and lasting changes that shaped its society for generations. But northern Wales proved to be the other side of the coin. While the kings of Gwyneth, Gwent, Brecciniog, and Morganwig do appear in Athelstan's court on occasion, we don't see nearly the same sort of close connection that we see with the English court that Hul Thaw had. And even some of Hul's own countrymen seem to have been rather bothered by his relationship with Athelstan, which is why we have this rather caustic appraisal of Hul's rule that appears in the contemporary Welsh poem, The Armas Prydian. And this apparent split is reflected in an important written document of this period, the Dunsaiton Agreement. Now, this was a document that was dated from around the 10th or 11th century, so right around where we're at right now. And in it, we're told that hostages and tributes from Gwent and Glywysing should be specifically delivered to the West Saxon portion of England. And that's strange, because Wessex wasn't an independent kingdom by the time of this agreement. It was just part of England. So why was Wessex getting its own tributes? Furthermore, scholars have pointed out that if it needed to be specified that tributes from Gwent and Glywysing went to Wessex, did that mean that the rest of the tributes should go to Mercia? After all, that was Athelstan's childhood kingdom. It's not clear. And this wasn't just a temporary arrangement. Over a century later, when the Norman conquerors wrote down the Doomsday Book, this same divide between Gwent and Glywysing and the rest of Wales appears in their assessment. So what happened here resulted in a bureaucratic and very likely a cultural split that lasted for over a hundred years with southeastern Wales being treated differently from the rest of Wales, and southwestern Wales cozying up with the English more than its northern neighbors. And the reason why I'm highlighting what happened with southeastern Wales, with Gwent and Glywysing, is because Gwent and Glywysing were really close to Cornwall and Exeter. And I'm wondering if these truly extraordinarily brutal tributes, and the ethnic cleansing, and the movement of the borders to the River Wye and the River Tamar, are all connected to the subsequent political sequestration of southeastern Wales from the rest of the region. Basically, I'm wondering if historian John Davies was right, and that there was a British rebellion against Athelstan, and it just didn't go that well. 
Now, for the rest of Athelstan's reign, the Cornish remained mostly on the margins. And I mean that quite literally. Following the purging of Exeter, Athelstan forced the Cornish border far to the west, to the River Tamar. And while it remains unclear how much power he had on the other side of that river, we do see him founding a bishopric at St. Germans. And critically, the see that he established there governed an area that crossed the border into Cornish territory, even though the bishopric itself was located in English territory. And interestingly, the bishop who oversaw that see had a British name, so he might have been Cornish. And all of this makes me wonder if the blended society that we heard about from William of Malmesbury continued even following the attack on Exeter, and that Cornwall just had its own way of doing things. But honestly, this whole situation just has me wondering what the hell happened in general, because we're getting a whole bunch of mixed signals. But whatever happened, and however the power was apportioned in that territory, the fact remains that following Exeter, Cornwall, even if it did remain independent, now only held dominion over a very small portion of their land. Just the tip. What's clear here is that we've lost huge sections of history for this era. But even with what we have, we can see that in just a handful of years, Athelstan had seized control of nearly the entire island. Virtually every monarch and kingdom on the island had either bowed to his rule or had been annexed by the newly formed kingdom of England. And it was just 927, which meant that he had only been on the throne for three years. And I keep hammering this point because what Athelstan had accomplished would have been impressive under the rule of any king that came before him. But considering the headwinds of his background and how he came to the throne, and considering how quickly he pulled this off, Athelstan appears to have been a real-life legend in his own time. And people were starting to take note. According to William of Malmesbury, quote, All Europe resounded with his praises and extolled his valor to the skies, end quote. And it seems that William was telling the truth here. And what happens next gives us more evidence of Athelstan's other equally astounding accomplishment. He brought Britain onto the continental political stage. And this was a seismic event. This island had historically been a political and cultural backwater since the days of Rome. But suddenly, under Athelstan's rule, the powers of the West were sitting up and taking note. And the reason for their sudden interest wasn't just because he managed to bring the island under his rule, or even that he did it while he was still young and handsome. It was most likely because of who he managed to defeat the Viking King of Dublin, and the Viking Kingdom of Jorvik. During this time, the fashionable and moneyed kingdoms of Brittany and Francia had been suffering devastating losses to the Scandinavians. And then you had this King Athelstan, who had managed to, in the space of a couple short years, defeat the Scandinavian kings and annex their lands. And in response, William tells us that the, quote, foreign princes with justice esteemed themselves happy if they could purchase his friendship, either by affinity or by presence, end quote. Basically, everybody was rushing to Athelstan to make his friendship, either by marrying into his family or by giving him a lot of cash and prizes. And this is borne out in the record, and for good reason. It looked like Athelstan had figured out the secret sauce to defeating the Danes. And so it's no surprise that the written record shows that he was suddenly awash with people seeking his favor. And at the front of the line was Harold, the king of Norway. And I bet you weren't expecting that. 
I mean, Norway was in Scandinavia. That's Viking territory. And yet we're told that Harold sent a delegation to King Athelstan, and it was led by the nobles Helgrim and Offred. And they brought with them a gift. They brought a ship. And not just any ship. The prow of this ship was cast in gold and fashioned to look like a beak. And all along the sides of the ship were shields in the Scandinavian fashion. And these shields were also gilded in gold. And propelling it through the water was a great purple sail. Now, I've read some pop writers who referred to this as a princely or a kingly gift. And I think they're mistaken. This gift would be kingly if it wasn't for the sail. But the color of the sail is a dead giveaway. Purple is a color that was traditionally reserved for only one class of persons. This was an imperial gift. Athelstan was being greeted as an emperor. And we're told that the delegation, along with Offred and Helgrim, were actually received by Athelstan, who lavished presents and honors upon them. And considering that English culture dictated that much of the gift-giving and honors take place at feasts, I'm pretty sure that the reception William tells us about was a grand feast. And considering that Athelstan had given Guthrith a three-day-long feast, and Guthrith was a prisoner of war, well, I'm pretty sure that Offred and Helgrim were in for one hell of a good time. And one thing to note about this feast is that it didn't happen where you might expect it to. It didn't happen in an Anglo-Saxon administrative center like Winchester or Tamworth. Instead, it was held in the recently conquered town of Jorvik. And we aren't told why Jorvik was the location chosen by Athelstan and the Norwegian delegation. But I suspect that Athelstan was already spending a lot of time up there, solidifying his hold on the territory. After all, he hadn't simply become the overking of the region. He couldn't rely on the existing ruling class to take care of everything for him. He grabbed all the land. And consequently, there was a lot of work that needed to be taken care of. There was a lot of administration. Furthermore, a court was more than just a roving party and a way to collect taxes. It was a propagandic tool. Having a king's court in a location ensured that his subjects, particularly his noble subjects, remembered the majesty of the crown, just in case they started to get any ideas. So having this feast in Jorvik makes a lot of sense. But a question remains. Why would a Scandinavian king work so hard to flatter a king of England? Especially when that king of England had recently taken a kingdom held by the Scandinavians. Well, Scandinavia is big. And while our sources are often fond of lumping all the Northmen into one group, the reality is that their association could be described as loose at best. They weren't all on the same team. And Jorvik was a Vikinger kingdom. It was founded by and ruled over by men who made their names by going a Viking. So was Dublin. In fact, Dublin wasn't just governed by Vikings. It was also a major slave trading hub for the people who were seized in Viking raids. And the thing to remember about all of this is that most Scandinavians didn't go a Viking. Most of them were farmers who were just as afraid of Vikinger crews as their neighbors to the south. So, why would a king of Norway praise an English king for annexing a Vikinger kingdom? Because they were under just as much threat by Viking raiders as the English were. And actually, there's some evidence to suggest that on top of taking over these pirate kingdoms, Athelstan was also adept at dealing with the pirates themselves. 
Have you noticed that during his reign, we've stopped hearing about the constant Viking attacks that were plaguing Britain? I mean, this is something his predecessors dealt with on a regular basis, but not Athelstan. And there might be a hint as to why. There are multiple instances where Athelstan employed a robust and powerful navy of his own. And it's entirely possible that Athelstan immediately went to work clearing out the seas as well as securing his borders on the land. His policies might be why we suddenly stop hearing about Viking attacks. But whatever the cause, the King of Norway was heaping enormous amounts of honor upon Athelstan. And in his capital of Westfold, the first King of England was remembered as Athelstan the Victorious. Oh, and there's one last thing about this delegation. Close listeners probably remember that Hakon, who was one of Athelstan's foster sons, was the son of King Harold of Norway. And you're probably wondering about the timing of that fostering. Unfortunately, we don't know if this delegation was how Hakon came to Athelstan's court, or if he was already there. But regardless, much like how Frankish envoys treated Athelstan like an emperor, it seems that the king of Norway was following suit. England had suddenly become the center of the world. And then just as suddenly, our record goes quiet. And it stays quiet for about six years. And given the way that the scribes judged newsworthy events, we can assume that this means that there weren't any wars, and also that the birds were just doing normal bird things. But just because Britain was largely peaceful, and that the birds were flocking in the proper way, it doesn't mean that nothing important was happening. And actually, a crisis was brewing. It was just that this crisis was taking place across the channel. And funnily enough, it actually did involve birds. Well, a guy who liked birds. See, when King Charles the Simple of Francia was imprisoned in 925, a well-connected man stepped in and he took possession of the kingdom of Lotharingia. His name was Henry the Fowler. Which, all things aside, is an awesome name. But the problem here was that Henry the Fowler wasn't Frankish. He was Saxon. And that didn't sit well with the Franks. You see, ever since the Franks took control, they managed to hold the exclusive right to rule in Germany. Right up until this moment. And it doesn't matter how cool your name is. If you're the first person to break through a glass ceiling, you better watch your back. And Henry was in a worse situation than most. And it was because Athelstan had just thrown a wrench into everything. Now, when Athelstan took the throne of Wessex, it probably wasn't noticed all that much by the Frankish or the new Saxon royalty. I mean, this new English king was rumored to be a bastard, and he was from a minor kingdom, and even his own people didn't seem to like him all that much, or at least didn't like his eyes. And at around the same time that he was being elevated, Charles the Simple was getting deposed, and new leaders were stepping forward, like Henry the Fowler. And so all things being considered... Henry the Fowler was just a bit too busy to notice Athelstan. But the trouble here was that Athelstan's sister was married to Charles the Simple. And when Charles's son, the crown prince, Louis, fled, he went to Athelstan's court. And suddenly, this bastard who was ruling over a backwater kingdom became a lot more important because in his court was a direct threat to the ruling order of Francia. And then it got worse. One of Henry's potential rivals, King Rudolf, started cozying up to Athelstan. He sent an envoy out seeking the hand of one of Athelstan's sisters for Hugh the Great, 
who was a potential Frankish heir to the throne. And the intent of this was clear. Since Rudolph was opposed to Charles the Simple, he was seeking to ensure that there would be no family honors that could be triggered. There'd be no reason for Athelstan to intervene on behalf of Louis, at least for family reasons. By marrying Hugh the Great to one of Athelstan's sisters, they would create an ambivalence, where Athelstan would have difficulty knowing which side to come down on if there was some sort of conflict. And hopefully, that would mean that he would just stay out of it. And Athelstan agreed to the marriage arrangement, which, at least as far as Henry the Fowler was concerned, meant that he was now tied to two Frankish dynasties. And there were two dynasties that could probably only agree on one thing, that Saxons shouldn't sit on Frankish thrones. The fact of the matter was, if they stopped fighting amongst themselves and turned their attentions upon King Henry the Fowler, he could find himself up to his neck in Frankish and English soldiers. And that wasn't good. So Henry, the birdman of Lotharingia, decided to take a page out of King Rudolph's book. He'd also seek a marriage alliance. And he'd sweeten the pot. While Rudolph just offered his brother-in-law as a potential groom, Henry would offer Athelstan the crown prince, a man named Otto. And so the Lotharingian envoy was sent. And when it arrived in Athelstan's court, the offer was likely received by a bit of a shock. The hand of the crown prince? Henry really must have wanted this alliance. And, to be fair, he did. But from the West Saxon perspective, it probably looked a lot more desperate than it actually was. Because from Athelstan's perspective, this was an enormous gift. Culturally, the West Saxons preferred to hold on to their marriage card until after they took the throne. It didn't always work out that way, but that was generally the idea. But here was Henry offering his son's hand in marriage before he even inherited the throne. At least from the West Saxon perspective, this was a major break from tradition because he was giving up a major diplomatic card with this match. Now, from the continental perspective, this probably wasn't as big of a deal as it was for Athelstan, but this is part of what makes culture clashes so fun because something that's a really big deal for one group isn't necessarily a big deal for everybody else. But consequently, Henry was just showering honors upon Athelstan with this offer. And what he couldn't have known is that this offer was actually really well-timed. See, Athelstan had a problem. Annexing Northumbria and gaining the submission of the rest of his neighbors had increased Athelstan's stature on the world stage. But it also came with significant headaches. Going and acquiring Northumbria was only really half of the problem. And in many ways, it was the easy part of the problem administering it, on the other hand, well, that's a whole other matter. After all, we're still in the era where the court traveled, and that's not because Wiltshire is lovely at this time of the year. It's because the court had to travel. Given the limits of their culture and capabilities, a traveling court was the most effective way for a monarch to maintain their grip on power. If you were a king, your subjects, at least the ones who mattered, needed to see you regularly and be reminded of your power, and also of their duty to you. A traveling court reinforced bonds, and it doused rebellious instincts, and it also made matters like taxation and the enforcement of law possible. After all, these courts also functioned as, you know, a court. And all of this worked out pretty well back in the days of the Heptarchy, because those kingdoms were pretty small and generally had borders that were defined by geographical boundaries that were tough to cross. 
In fact, even when kings like Offa formed hegemonies, they still tended to leave under kings in charge of their own territories, because that way they didn't have to figure out how to administer justice to people across the fens, because the people across the fens were some other king's problem. But all of that changed by 927. Now that Athelstan had his double-stuffed kingdom, all of the English were Athelstan's problem. And it really was a problem. This royal court moved slowly. It was a huge operation, so it took time to go from place to place. Consequently, they couldn't effectively govern everything on their own. What they needed was a way to have some administrative matters carried out without the presence of the court. Furthermore, a lot of Athelstan's territory had recently been under Dane law, which meant that the administration, both within the church and also with the local government, was out of keeping with Mercian and West Saxon tradition, and it needed to be brought back in line with Anglo-Saxon, which was now English, styles of rule. And to do that, he needed boots on the ground. He needed to reform those institutions and then ensure that they remained reformed. So what he needed was a bureaucratic network of people who were ready to both carry out his administrative duties and also reform the institutions at hand. He needed learned people. And while Alfred did try and force all of his nobles to learn how to read, it's not clear how effective he was at getting them all to actually do it. Furthermore, that policy was just limited to Alfred's borders, meaning Wessex and parts of Mercia. Alfred had never governed anything as large as England. And learned men don't just grow on trees. They were rather rare during this era, which meant that if Athelstan was going to reform the northeastern part of his kingdom, he needed some help. And Henry's marriage offer was just what the doctor called for, because the Franks were experienced at bureaucracy. Furthermore, the continent had large numbers of religious houses, and it was within those houses that learned men resided, and they had the skills required for administrative work. King Henry the Fowler was looking to make an alliance, and he was looking to do it out of desperation. And he probably didn't know this, but this was an incredible opportunity for England. And so in response, Athelstan dispatched two of his sisters, Aidgif and Elfgifu, and the Crown Prince Otto was told he could have his pick of whoever he preferred. And that probably sounds disturbingly transactional to you. And that's because it was disturbingly transactional. But this also wasn't unheard of for Dark Age ruling classes. As the head of the household, Athelstan was likely just meeting his cultural duty of providing two unmarried girls to a marriage request. And this probably isn't what people have in mind when they say they want to be treated like a princess. But there you have it. And in the end, Otto chose a gift. And in the following year of 929, Otto and Aidgith were married at Quedlingburg. And on an emotional level, we can hope that this was as happy an arrangement as possible. But ultimately, this was political. What we're seeing here is a new and precariously positioned Ottonian dynasty forming an alliance with the powerful military dynasty of England. This was an important diplomatic moment. And consequently, it demanded an equally impressive celebration. And we're told that the party was extravagant and that an influential embassy took place at the wedding with Athelstan sending major figures in his court led by the Mercian Bishop Chenwald of Worcester. And close listeners will probably note that the influential Bishop of Winchester wasn't sent, which makes me think that he and Athelstan were still feuding at this point. But after the wedding, 
Athelstan's envoy, led by Bishop Chenwald, went to all the churches in Germany. And that's something that William specifically calls out. Apparently, they made sure to go to all of them. And this was one part of public relations campaign, with the envoy lavishing gifts upon the churches to demonstrate Athelstan's piety, while also singing Princess Agith's praises and boasting about how she was related to St. Oswald. But it was also one part recruitment campaign. Those gifts, as well as the stories of Athelstan's piety, were attractive to the clergymen who were residing in those churches. And they were clergymen with administrative skills that England had a serious need of. And sure enough, we soon see Theodred, the Bishop of London, working alongside a small army of German clergy. And they quickly set about reforming the East Anglian Church, which had fallen to tatters under the last two generations of Danish rule. Also soon thereafter, we see evidence of yet one more of Athelstan's lasting legacies, his law codes. In fact, Athelstan was one of the most law-focused of the early English kings, releasing six codes of law in relatively quick succession, with the first codes being focused, as you might imagine, on reforming church behavior. But by producing these law codes, Athelstan was able to codify his wishes and expectations. And in this way, even if he and his court weren't present, there were significant detailed treatises on precisely how the king's peace was to be maintained. And make no mistake about it, Athelstan was particularly focused upon the maintenance of the king's peace. These law codes were part of how he was going to handle administering his new double-stuffed kingdom. But there's a funny thing about law codes. You need people who can read the laws and who are empowered to carry them out. But it just so happened that following this marriage, England now had a wealth of people who were trained to do exactly that. And so... Even though it takes place overseas, and occurs in peacetime, and doesn't involve generals or battlefields, this marriage between Agith and Otto would go on to have cultural and political implications for the Ottonian dynasty, for the House of Wessex, and for England in general, for generations. It's funny how these things work out. And as for those of you asking, well, what about the other sister, the one that Otto didn't choose, Elfgifu? Well, we're told that she married a prince of the Alps, who some scholars believe was King Conrad the Peaceable of Burgundy, which sounds relaxing. So she probably did okay. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast, and we have tons of other communities, and you can find links to all of them in the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.